0: What do you do when you're discouraged? What do you do when you're doing your best to follow God? You're trying to do what He wants you to do. It's hard. The task is difficult. seems everywhere you turn there's one challenge after another, but yet you're taking them in stride. You're like the the person that, that runs at a track meet. You got all the hurdles in front of you, and you're running, and it seems like the hurdles are getting closer together. But somehow you just you just keep taking them in stride, and you're just you're going on, and everything is going well. But they're becoming more and more intense, and they're closer together, and you're just not sure how much more energy you got or how much more strength you got. And all of a sudden, you begin to think, "I can't do this. I can't finish the course. I can't complete the task that God has given me." And discouragement comes. What do you do when the discouragement settles in and becomes part of your constant thoughts throughout the day? What do you do when that discouragement moves to depression? And what do you do when that discouragement and that depression begin to to so consume your heart and your mind that you are on the very verge of complete derailment. One thing that you do is you recognize where that comes from. Folks, Jesus has come that we might have life, but the enemy's intent is to kill and steal and destroy. Discouragement, depression, and derailment Most of the time in the life of the Christian, not always, but most of the time in the life of the Christian is coming from the enemy, whether we recognize it or not. He is trying to get us off base. He's trying to get us off balance. He's trying to to discourage, depress, and derail us to the point that we are not doing what God wants us to do. Why? Because when you are following God, there is fruit that comes from your life. Some of it you see, and some of it you will not know until you get to eternity. But when you are doing what God has called you to do, even in the mundane task of studying for a quiz, studying for a midterm, writing a paper, whatever it is, when you are doing what God has called you to do, it will bear fruit. And so the only one that would bring discouragement into your life is the enemy. He might use people, he might use circumstances, but it is a spiritual battle. Do not forget that. That is what is going on. We have been studying about the spiritual battles of our life. We've been talking about the fact that we are in a spiritual war. And sometimes we think we're at war with the the, the government. Sometimes people think they're at war with the media. Sometimes people think they're at war with with non-believers. Sometimes people think we're at war with believers. But the fact of the matter is, is we are at war with an enemy much wiser than all of, all of those combined as we have been learning the last two weeks. And we have been talking about the fact that the, the, the burden that God placed upon my heart was to prepare us for the, for the battles in the spiritual war that are coming, and they are coming quickly. In fact, just this morning I heard about a pastor in Canada that I ended up doing a bunch of research on that is sitting in jail today because they were worshiping Jesus at his church. Now, there's a whole lot more to it, and you can read all about it. We don't have time to go into that, but folks, I want you to understand this is coming here. Last week, there was somewhat of a celebration in the United States that our Supreme Court said to California, kind of slapped them on the hand and said, you can't tell churches they can't meet. But at the same time, what that did not do, which a, a three of the justices actually wrote afterwards and said this is a problem that we did not go all the way with this, is it did leave in, in effect the order in California that says you can't sing when you gather to worship. Now they acknowledged, three of them said, this is a problem, we should have dealt with it all, because this is problematic, however, uh, churches can bring that back, but these are three we're acknowledging, they should have dealt with that too, because folks, the fact of the matter is, is that the government has no business telling a church when and where and how they worship. And so therefore, we have a problem that we are in, and there are more battles that are coming, in fact... Two days ago I read an article about the fact that the United Nations is now strongly, strongly pushing that even that countries begin to d- develop laws and policies that even religious groups must bow to the LGBTQ community. The United Nations pushing this. Folks, we are in a changing culture and a changing time and there is a, an intensity of Of standing against the Christian faith all across our globe. Joe and I were talking recently about the fact that 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 in other places in the world where there had been a little bit of relief that has now intensified the persecution of Christians. Last night at church we heard about a, a prayer request from the Voice of the Martyrs about an issue, a specific issue. It is happening all over and it is coming to our neighborhood. And so we have been asking the question, how can we deal with these spiritual battles of what do we do? And we talked about the fact that when you're in a war and you're getting ready for a particular battle... That what happens is somebody from strategic command comes in and has a briefing with the group about to face battle and says, Hey, here's some operational principles that you need to know. Here's some intelligence you need to know. Here's some rules of engagement. Here's what we think the enemy is going to do. And you need to be ready for that. And so last week and this week in chapel, we're asking the question... What kind of operational instructions do we get from Scripture about dealing with this time? And we've have, we have been looking at the life of Elijah who faced even more challenging times than we are today. And we've been learning operational principles using that op as a reminder. The first sermon that we listened to in chapel that, that dealt with this issue was saying that, hey, what we need to do is we need to obey God and we need to trust His provision no matter the circumstances. The second operational principles that we learned was that we need to obey God and we need to proclaim the truth no matter the consequences, no matter the cost. Last Tuesday, we learned together that, that as we continued our study of Elijah that we need to obey God, right? We're getting it three times in a row now. We obey God, we obey God, we obey God. That is so crucial to what we do. But we also learned that not only do we need to obey God, but we need to pray effectively. And we learn about the difference between just haphazard praying and praying effectively. And we learn that to pray effectively, it's got to be intense and intent. We got to pray intently. We got to pray expectantly. We got to pray consistently or persistently. We got to persist in and we got to pray rejoicingly, knowing that, that God can handle whatever request we bring. And so today we come to our last message in this series and believe it or not what we deal with is the de- as we deal with the issue of what to do when you're discouraged and what to do when that discouragement settles in because ladies and gentlemen i want you to know if you're not discouraged today praise god but you will be you will be it's a part of life to be discouraged but it's even more a part of following God because the enemy is specifically trying to discourage you. And he will bring all kinds of things into your life, all kinds of circumstances into your life. It might be money. It might be relationships. It might be direct attacks like some of those I've described today already. Some of them we've talked about in in the last two weeks. But in various ways, he's going to try to discourage you. Now, remember where we left Elijah in 1 Kings 18. We left him in the midst of what appeared to be a massive spiritual awakening. A revival. Remember what happened. I mean, he went up on Mount Carmel in chapter 18. And and, and, man, he stands alone and he does all this stuff and he proclaims the truth. and, And at the end of the day, God has showed up and it says that all the people fell down on their face and said, the Lord is God. Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. I mean, Elijah couldn't have asked for anything more. Any, any preacher in any time who preaches the word of God could not ask for anything more than that. I mean, this is what, they, this is what he was after. And, and yet, in that victory, he, he wasn't content there. He obeyed all the way. He finished the task. He didn't partially obey God. But he went all the way, and he declared rain when, when it hadn't rained in three and a half years, and there wasn't a cloud in the sky. But at God's word, he declared it, and then, amazingly, God answered, and the, the rain came. And he is so rejoicing in God, in prayer, and excitement. That, that Remember where we left him at the end of chapter 18. If your Bible's not there, open it back up to chapter 18 of 1 Kings. And remember where we, where we left Elijah in verse 46. Then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah and he girded up his loins and he ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. I mean, Ahab, was, he was in, uh, in his chariot being pulled by the best horses in the kingdom and he already had a head start. And Elijah is so excited and rejoicing in what God has done. Man, this is just a wonderful thing. And he just, I mean, he just takes off and he catches up to him and he runs past him and he gets to Jezreel before the king does. I mean, he is just excited, man. He is running on adrenaline. This is awesome. We have this great thing. And then we come to chapter 19. Look there in verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and also... How he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow at this time. Now remember the context. Uh, Elijah has just stood up to the king and his army. 850 false prophets and all of Israel who gathered that day to stand against him. He is rejoicing at all that God has done. I mean, everybody just repented, right? Isn't that what they did? They, the Lord He's God. He's, that's it. This is what he had been praying for. This is what he had been working for. And now one lady says, by tomorrow at this time you're going to be dead. I'm going to kill you. And all of a sudden, It's like Elijah forgets all those victories. It's like he forgets everything that God had done by his hand in the last three and a half years. And look what the text says he does in verse 3. And so when he saw that, he arose and he ran for his life. And he went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servants there. He puts his tennis shoes back on and takes off running. But this time, he's not running rejoicing. He's running in fear. By the way, it's about 125 miles from Jezreel down to where he runs to. (laughs) I mean, he's he's out of there. Here, he, he had stood against all these people, but now Jezebel makes this statement. Remember, a few weeks ago, or last week, we learned... That that when he first left, when God told him to leave, where did God send him? To To Jezebel's hometown. He went into the enemy's camp. But now, just at a message he receives from Jezebel, he runs and he runs away. He is out of there. He is scared to death for his life. In verse 4 it says, then he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. So so he, he goes down to, to, to Judah, to Beersheba, That 120 miles or 125 miles, he leaves his servant there because he don't want even his servant to know where he's going. Because if they catch him, they'll they'll torture him or whatever to find out where I am. I'm leaving him here. There's not going to be any witnesses where I'm going. And then it it tells us he heads a, a day into the wilderness, another day's journey. He's wore out. He's tired. He's hungry. He's thirsty. He sees a a, a little broom tree. Remember that? We saw Jonah in Jonah chapter 4 sitting under a broom tree. Not much shade. But that's all he had. And so he sits down. And then his discouragement begins to pour forth. He is totally discouraged. We'll find out in a minute that he is depressed. We'll find out in a minute that with one message from one person, after standing against everyone, he is totally depressed and derailed and don't want to take another step. What do you do when that's where you are in your walk with God? What do you do when that's where you are? When you're totally, don't even know how, you could possibly, or even if you want to, make another move. What do you do? We're going to go back to R-O and P, but we're going to reverse them today. Today, instead of talking about op, we're going to talk about PO. And no, that isn't what they mean down south when they say po, When they say po down south, it means you don't have anything to eat or you're homeless. That's not what we're talking about. But these are two operational principles, and I use those two words again so that I, I'm trying to give you something in memory with the op and the now the po that you can hold on to for all of the days that are ahead and all the battles that you will face in your life until you die or until Jesus returns. And so we have these two operational principles, and the first one is Poe. What do we do? What is this first one? And here it is. I want you to take it down, write it, put it in your phone, do whatever, or if you can remember it, just remember it. But here it is. You pray honestly. Yesterday we learned about praying effectively, or Tuesday we learned about praying effectively. But today I want you to know that when you pray to God, you can and you should pray honestly. Folks, I, I got to tell you, in my own walk, it was hard for me to learn this. I, I don't know why, I guess because I'm, I'm a little dense. But I could preach about the fact that God sees and knows everything and then try to hide things from God in my prayer life. I, I, I don't know how I thought I could do that. But I felt like sometimes that, you know, I can't express my honest thoughts to God right now, my honest feelings to God right now. That would just be wrong. Well, listen, if those are your honest thoughts and feelings, do you not really think God knows them anyway? So you might as well just share them. That's one of the reasons that people love the book of Psalms so much because in Psalms we see the psalmist, all of them, but especially we see it in David where, where actually, no matter what he's thinking, no matter what he's feeling, he just lays it out before God, man. When he is full of gratitude, he just flows forth in in thankfulness. When he when he's just full of uh, of the awesomeness of God and praise, he just. Pours forth every thought he has about that. And then when he's down and discouraged and depressed, he tells God. When his enemies are after him and he's just like, God, why don't you do something about him? He tells God. I mean, he gets very serious. I mean, you read the imprecatory Psalms and you know he's being honest with God here. I mean, I mean, one of them just loosely translated here, or maybe paraphrased here, is God, just make his wife a widow and his children fatherless is what it says. He's saying, God, just kill them all. I mean, that's where he's at. But he's honest with God about where he is. And, and listen, if you and I are going to thrive in the battles that are coming our way, we are going to have to learn to pray not only effectively, But we got to learn to pray honestly with God. God can handle it. he's, He's big. He can take you saying, I'm upset. He can take you saying, God, I don't understand. He can handle it. And he already knows you're feeling it and thinking it, so just tell him. And that's what we find with Elijah. I want you to look how Elijah deals with this. Look with me at the the very next verse, uh, verse 4 again. It says, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and sat under a broom tree. Now look what it says, and he prayed that he might die. Folks, he's moved past discouragement, he is in absolute depression from one letter. I mean, if if he was alive today, and and instead of going to instead of going to see Doctor Sweet, he went to a worldly counselor, and they'd be sitting there. They wouldn't say it, but they'd be sitting there, say, "This guy's an idiot." I mean, look at all these victories, and he's scared about this one little letter. What what's wrong with this guy? Doesn't make sense. It doesn't matter if it doesn't make sense to you and me or anybody else. That's where he was. And and he has moved past discouragement. He is in total depression. And guess what? He is now derailed. Look on in the verse. He prayed that he might die and said, now listen to what he says. It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. Now, now look what happens in this. And this is what happens to all of us, whether you realize this or not. When you react as he does, when the discouraging thoughts come and you give in to them, it's not long before you're not only discouraged about whatever it was, in his case, the letter from Jezebel, but you're also discouraged about the fact that you weren't stronger. And you begin to, to say, I'm no better than them. God, I failed you. I have failed you. So first he says, it's enough. You know what he's saying? I'm derailed. I'm done. I can't take another step. I'm not going to open another book. I'm not going to prepare for another quiz. I'm not going to do another assignment. I'm done. I'm finished. I'm, that's it. I'm I'm tired of, of standing up to, to the world. I'm going to quit. Those of you going into the pastorate, there are going to be days where, 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 where you just are not going to want to stand in the pulpit again, but it's five minutes till and it's time to start. What are you going to do? He is saying, no more. I'm done. God, I'm through. And now immediately, and, and he says, so he says, Lord, take my life. Why did he go to that extreme? Why did he move to that extreme so quickly? Because, listen, he knew that if he wasn't going to obey God, his life was done for anyway, in his mind. Man, if I I don't obey God, then I'm going to lose his hand of blessing, and, oh, man, I'm I'm no better than all of them. And so now the depression hits him on the other side, and he says, I'm no better than my father. But what I want you to see here is he knew enough, even in that moment, to be honest with God in prayer. Now, he goes to sleep. He's exhausted. And he falls asleep there under that broom tree. A little while later, God sends an angel, not just a human messenger, but a spirit messenger, to come and and he wakes him up. And he has cake and water. I mean, that's what Ben wants when he's down. No, he wants cake and chocolate milk now that, uh, now that uh, Joe and Tyler introduced him to chocolate milk. He thinks that's the best thing in the world now. Cake and chocolate, well, that's what we want, right? Well, actually, it just means just some kind of form of bread. It's not, necess- it's not a birthday cake, so don't, don't get too excited. But he wakes up and he gets this, he sees it, and and the angel says, go ahead and eat. So he eats. And then after he eats the cake and he drinks the water, he's still exhausted, his body's still wore out, he's still mentally, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted, and and so he, he just goes back to sleep. And a little while later, he gets woke up again. And again, there's, there's a cake and there's water again. And this time, the angel says, says to him, he says, uh, Arise and eat, in verse 7, at the end of verse 7. Arise and eat, because the journey is too great to you, for you. And so he arose and he ate and drank, and he went in the strength of the food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. That's how I know it wasn't chocolate cake, because it's gone in about 10 minutes. But he says, hey, this, you need this, eat it. As Professor Ferguson likes to say, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is eat and sleep. And all the students say, "Amen." yeah. <laughs> Listen, that's what he needed at that moment. And so I want you to notice something. Do you remember that first principle we learned about trusting God's provision? Notice that God is providing for him even now when he's depressed, when he's derailed, when he's not following God and he's even more depressed that he's not. And God is still lovingly taking care of him and ministering to him and meeting his needs. So he gets up and he runs. And the Bible tells us that he he ran all the way to the mountain Horeb. There are two different sites that people have claimed was the Mount Horeb. This is where Moses received uh, the, the commandments. This is the mountain of God. And he ran to them. We don't know which one it is. There are different arguments. You can get Dr. Ingalls to tell you which one he believes it is, whether it's the one that currently sits in Egypt or the one that currently sits in Saudi Arabia. And, There have been discussions and debates about which one. But either way, I want you to know this is several hundred miles, whichever one it is. And he goes and he gets there. And he gets to this spot and he goes into a cave. Verse 10, I'm sorry, verse 9. It says, there he went into a cave and he spent the night in that place. He's running from God. He's not only ran from Jezreel down to Down to Judah. He not only ran from there out into the wilderness. And now he's ran all the way back to to Horeb. The mountain of God. He gets there. He finds a cave. He goes in the cave. Man, he is as far away from where God sent him as he could possibly be. And he's depressed and discouraged and derailed. And notice what happens. The word of the Lord came to him, verse 9, and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? I don't know about you, but sometimes sometimes I'd rather somebody just tell me something than ask me a question. And those questions can be haunting. I know sometimes the Lord has put questions in my heart that were more convicting than about anything else in that moment. God knew why Elijah was there, but Elijah needed to admit to God why he was there. And God asked the question, so what's Elijah going to do? Listen, I want you to see again, he prays honestly. Look at verse 10. So he said, I have been very zealous for the God, Lord God of hosts, for Yahweh God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek my life. I mean, does he remember what happened on Mount Carmel when he stood against all those people he just talked about? Does he remember what happened when he prayed? No. All he remembers now is after he, had, he thought they experienced revival... After everybody gave lip service to God, he gets one letter from one person saying, I want you dead. And now he's running. He's saying, They've all turned against me. There's, There's no one left. I'm it. And that's done. I'm done. They seek to take my life. That's what I'm doing here, God. I mean, he hasn't let up a bit from his earlier prayer. He's given more details now. But he's still very upset. He's saying, God, that's why I'm here. And then so, <laughs> he, he's there in the cave, and so, so look what happens. God is still coming to him. God doesn't just turn and walk off. God doesn't just say, well, get over it. But what he says is, go and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord will pass by. And so he gets up out of the cave, and he goes to the edge, and he's looking out. And the great precipice in front of him. And he's waiting for God. And a strong wind comes and tears a piece out of the mountain. An earthquake comes. Shakes everything. Fire comes. And after all of it, it says, but the Lord was not in the wind. The Lord was not in the earthquake. The Lord was not in the fire. But then at the end of verse 12, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. So God showed and demonstrated his power. Evidently, Elijah needed to be reminded that, listen, you serve the all-powerful God. Remember what I did just a few days ago for you. This is the power I have. But God did not speak to him in all of that. He just demonstrated his power. But he spoke to him in a still small voice. Verse 13, so when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave and suddenly a voice came to him and said, are you ready? What are you doing here, Elijah? I mean, now he's asking again. Listen, Elijah's heart had not softened. You say, how do you know that? Well, look at verse 14. He just repeats himself. He says, God, you are going to ask the same question. I'm going to give you the same answer. I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it. I mean, this is just like a broken record. Just playing the same thing over and over and over. And it's not like the worship songs. It's not a good thing where we repeat the same phrase over and over. This is a bad thing. He's like, he's like, come on, God, where are you? I stood for you. I've been very zealous for you. I stood in faith against everyone. But God, nothing's happening here. Where are you? What's going on? I mean, the, the, the altars are still torn down. I mean, they, they killed all of your prophets except me, and they're trying to find me. I mean, God, I did everything you said and, and there's still no revival. It was just lip service. It reminds me of a day when many of you, if you were not born and others of you that were, were so young you wouldn't remember, but it reminds me of our nation in 2001. I've told you before how the Dr. Williams and, and Miss Ballard and I were on our way to China for a mission trip and we got stopped. We were literally going down the runway to take off, and halfway down the runway they stopped us. And how, how Deanna Williams, Miss Williams, was, was up watching all this from the, from the airport, seeing us take off, and waited. And, and, and then pretty soon we were back in there, and, and we heard all of that had gone on with the attacks in New York City and in Washington, D.C., and, and, and then the plane that went down in Pennsylvania because of the, the passengers who, who stood up. And, and we saw all of that happen. And all of a sudden, for, for those of you that, that, that are too young to remember this, you need to hear what happened. America changed. On the 10th of September of 2001, if you said a prayer in a public school, you'd, you'd be in big trouble. But even in the Northeast, schools had on their billboards, pray for America. And prayer meetings were all of a sudden okay. (laughs) Listen, the Democrats, the Republicans, and the Independents from both houses of Congress came out on the steps of the Capitol, held hands, and prayed to God. It was a wow, amazing moment. And I remember discussions that Dr. Williams and I had during that time Is, do you think this could be the beginning of that revival we've been praying for and working for? Folks, within a matter of a few weeks, it was all gone. And now we've seen over the last 20 years a tightening. And over the last year, an intense tightening of the world standing against the Christian faith. It was all gone. Elijah sitting there saying, that night, God, they all said you're God, and that night she sent this, saying I was going to be killed. It didn't even last two weeks. He's discouraged. He's depressed. And so he honestly, honestly prays to God. He tells him what he's thinking listen, don't ever forget this. If I could speak to that pastor that's in jail in Canada today, I would tell him, be honest with God. Tell him what you're feeling. Tell him what you're thinking. If I could speak to a brother or sister in Iran, or in India, or China, today, Who's in prison, maybe already tortured, maybe facing execution? I would say to them pray honestly to God. Tell him what you're thinking. Tell him what you're feeling. Until we are honest with God, we're just fooling ourselves, we're just playing games. When you're discouraged, nip it in the bud as Barney Fife would say, for those of you that know Barney Fife. Start right then and tell God. But if you didn't and you're already past that and depression is setting in, tell God. Be honest with Him. If you've already moved past that and you're, you're right on the edge of derailment, get alone with God and pray honestly to Him. The first principle that I want you to learn on this last sermon of the series is pray honestly about your thoughts and your feelings to God. But There's another principle that we see. It's obey God, (laughs) but a little bit different. Obey consistently. We learned that we need to obey twice. We learned that we need to obey uh, to the full last time. We need to, partial obedience isn't, is not really disobedience. We need to obey all the way. But today, what I want you to see is we need to obey God consistently even when we don't feel like it. There's a scene in, uh, in the movie... Uh, that the Kendrick brothers put out several years ago about marriage. And two firemen are talking. And one of them just said, "I'm, I'm trying to follow my heart. And the other one looked at him and said, don't follow your heart, lead it. Be honest with God about where you are, where your heart is, where your head is, where your thoughts, where your feelings are. But lead your thoughts and your feelings to obey God. That's what Elijah is presented with in this moment. That concept and fireproof that probably is really the, the core message of that entire film. Don't lead, don't follow your heart, lead it. That is what Elijah is now faced with. He's laid this out before God. He has has been honest with God in his prayers. God has just asked the same question twice. First, God just fed him and listened. God took care of his needs, And and then he let him run some more, and then he asked the question, and Elijah honestly answered, and then he asked the question again, Elijah honestly answered again. And now, for the first time in over 40 days, we don't know exactly how many days this total is, but we know it's more than 40 days. And for the first time in 40 days, God now speaks more than just a question. And notice what he says in verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Maholeth, you shall anoint as prophet in your place." And it shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all who who have not bowed the knee to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now, isn't it amazing the way God responds? He said, well, you kind of just kind of read that kind of haphazardly, didn't you there, preacher? Yeah, I did. Because I really believe that's the tone of what we see happen. I mean, God doesn't, God doesn't come in and say, you dummy, don't you remember what I did? Why are you here again? I mean, come on, get this. I get what you're saying, Elijah, but, but you're an idiot, man. You, you just prayed, and it rained after three and a half years. And before that, you prayed, and fire fell from heaven. You, you, you've just seen that I can control the elements. I, I sent this strong wind that tore up part of the mountain. I, I sent an earthquake. I sent fire. I can do anything. What's your problem? No, that's not what God does. You know what God does? Is he's listened. He's let Elijah say everything. And then he says, go back to work. That's it. Go back to work. And now Elijah's got to decide, what am I going to do? And he decides he's going to be consistent in his obedience to God, even though he don't feel like it. And notice what he does in verse 19. So he departed from there. He got up and he went. (laughs) He obeyed. The circumstances hadn't changed. He didn't have some runner come find him and give him a letter from Jezebel. Oh, I'm so sorry. Come on back. It's okay. I mean, Jezebel was still after him. Nothing had changed on that front. But God said, now, Elijah, get back to work. It reminds me of things I've read about Charles Hatton Spurgeon, how on Monday morning he would be so depressed he didn't want to get out of bed. And his wife sometimes would actually get a broom and beat him and say, get out of bed and go serve God, you know? <laughs> Sometimes we need somebody to do that for us. But in this case, it wasn't even that. It was just, okay, Elijah, get back to work. I've heard you. Go back to work. I mean, God did demonstrate his power, but he didn't didn't get on to him. He just said, go do what I've called you to do. And he gives him these three things. Now, Now, listen, I want you to notice that Elijah is not really fully back in commission here. Not yet. You say, well, how do you know? Well, continue with me. Go back to into verse 19 again. So he departed from there, and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him. And he was with the 12th. So he finds Elisha. He's working in the field. He's, he's leading the people that work for him. He's actually working with them. Then Elijah passed by him, and he threw, and he threw his mantle on him. And he left the auction, ran after Elijah and said, please let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again for what have I done to you? I mean, Elijah isn't really excited about what he's doing. He hasn't all of a sudden been reinvigorated with joy that he had when he ran and outran Ahab. He just comes by, he's being obedient. But it appears to me in the text that he is just like being obedient, but his, his heart's really fully not in it yet. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't come to Elisha and say, Elisha, man, this is a great day. God has chosen you to be the next great prophet of Israel. And you will come after me. And when I die, after i train you a while, I will die. But no, I, he didn't know this yet, but he didn't die, did he? But he thought, he's going to die. And when I do, guess what, Elisha? You're going to take over. And if Elijah knew into the future, he would have said, and you're going to do double the good that I've done. But he didn't do any of that. Joe, don't use this recruiting strategy when you're trying to get students here. I mean, we try to say, hey, yeah, it's going to be tough, but there's going to be good stuff, you know. But, I mean, he doesn't do any of that. He just walks by, takes his mantle off, throws it on him, keeps walking. <laughs> I guess if you got to, come on. You know, <laughs> I got to, you got to now. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> and immediately, somehow, Elisha knew. this. Wow, he chose me? And Elisha's excited about it. Elijah's not, but Elisha is. But he does want to tell his parents goodbye. And so he comes to him and he says, Hey, can I go, can I go kiss my family goodbye first? Now, now we know in the context, and for time, we're not going to read the rest of it, but what he does is he actually takes all of his implements and he, he, he uses them to make a fire and he sacrifices all of those animals that he'd been using to, to do his plowing as an altar, as an offering to God, because he says, God, uh, I'm burning all my bridges, I'm yours. But it's not because Elijah did a great job of persuasion of come follow me. In fact, what did Elijah do when he asked if he could go back and tell his family? He says, Yeah, return back. Just, what have I done to you? But he obeyed, he obeyed consistently. He trains him. God does many more great things Sir Elijah. The day finally comes for him to go to heaven and God intervenes and doesn't have him die. But he actually transports him up into heaven in a whirlwind. An amazing thing and Elisha saw it and immediately God's hand that was on Elijah comes on to Elisha and he begins to do all kinds of miraculous things and standing for the truth, following in the footsteps of Elijah. But all of it was simply because Elijah obeyed consistently even when he didn't feel like it. I've shared with you, some of you have never heard this story but many of you have heard at least the flow of the story the hardest day the hardest week that we've ever had was during project Lo- launch 13 days before Northeastern Baptist College opened and I'd become convinced on a particular Wednesday that there was nothing we could do we were not going to be able to continue, and the doors of the college would never opened. Everything was against us. Nothing was going our way. We had been faithful, despite all that for months. We had, we had a prayer meeting uh, over in New Hampshire that, that some in this room came to to pray with us that God would do something, and still, nothing happened. And we come to the place where where I said, guys, I I called the staff in on that Wednesday that was working for us at the time, and I said, listen, we're not going to make it unless God does something totally miraculous before the end of the day on Friday. It's not going to happen. i got to be responsible as a leader and do two things. Number one, i got to tell all of you to sharpen your resume, and I want you to spend this morning doing that and start putting it out and looking for jobs. And then whatever time you'll give me for the rest of the week, I've got assignments for each of you to help me prepare to close Project Launch 13 and communicate to everybody that the college will never open. You talked about a hard thing to deliver in a very somber moment. It was, it was very dismal. For the next rest of that day, Wednesday and all day Thursday, Everyone did their jobs to prepare for closing. I would work for a while and then I would just sit in my chair and turn and look at the wall and stare. I've shared with you that on Friday morning, in my prayer time, God changed my heart. And I came in and I called everyone together again and I said, I got to tell you that Nothing's happened. I don't know if it will today or not. I don't know if God's going to do some miracle today. And quite frankly, if He don't, I don't know how I can open the doors on Monday morning. But God won't release me, and so I'm going to keep going. I don't expect you to. I told you to put out your resumes. And you can do that. But I just have to tell you, I won't quit until I've lost everything I own. Or until God comes through. And if I live the rest of my life in shame, so I do. But God has not released me. I've shared with you that throughout that day, nothing happened. We didn't even get a penny donation to keep moving forward. But I also shared with you that by the end of the day, every one of them had come in. In fact, within just a matter of an hour... Each one of our staff that time had come in in their own unique way, said, I'm with you, we're going to stay to this task. Obviously, you know that because we're sitting here all these years later. What I haven't shared until very recently with anybody, in fact, I hadn't even shared the details of this with Cindy until very recently, was what happened in my prayer time on Friday morning. I poured out my heart to God. And I said, God, I don't understand. I know that you called me to do this. And God, I had 47 bucks and and we made it this far. Why aren't you coming through this time? I don't get it. Lord, I I don't even know how we're going to go on. I, I don't get I mean, what am I going to do with my life? I can't go back to the pastorate. How can I go back and be a pastor of people and, and, and tell them, well, what do I say? You know, I, I trusted God and he, he didn't come through. I mean, what, what do I say? I mean, God, my whole life, I have story after story from the time I was a, a teenager of having nothing and you coming through, but you haven't done it this time. I don't get it. I've had enough. I'll just move to some state and not tell anybody where I'm going and get a job and work as hard as I can make as much money as I can. And and all the money I owe my staff, they'll just get anonymous things by money order till it's all paid. Because I'm I'm not going to let them down and the implication is like you've let me down. What pride, what arrogance, but I knew enough to be honest with God. When I could think of nothing else to say, I just sat there in my prayer time in my, my home early in the morning. Like This was like started at three in the morning and by now it was probably five o'clock. And I just sat there for hours, not knowing what to do, not knowing what to say. It was about time for me to get my shower and wake up Cindy and Ben and get ready to go to the office for my final day. And as I sat there in silence, it was a a simple question. Did I tell you to quit? I didn't like the question, tried to get it out of my head. I wanted answers and he gave me a question, did I tell you to quit? And over the next couple of minutes, my entire heart changed and I was able to go in and tell the staff what I told them. And because of that, you're sitting in this room today. Ladies and gentlemen, when you follow God, it's not going to be easy in any time. But especially not this time. And if God ever puts you in a place of this kind of leadership, can I tell you the hardest thing? And so often you feel like Elijah when you look over at Elisha around you. And you say, what have I done to you? I'm, I'm, I'm being as transparent as I know how to be. I, I want you to know that there have been days that I have went to God on behalf of the faculty and staff of this institution, past, present, and future. And say, God, how in the world could I ask them to join us in this What have I done to them that I I have asked to join us? Because I know, because I've lived it. But then, I obey. And that's what all of them sitting around you do. And students, you will never know the depth of the sacrifice that the faculty and staff of this school have made from PL 13 days to today to do what God told us to do and to simply obey you have an example before you and the faculty and staff of this school they walk in the shoes of Elijah And you can, too. Bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Maybe you're discouraged today. Be honest with God. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're running with joy today. Enjoy it. whenever those moments of discouragement and depression and possible derailment come remember Elijah pray honestly to God and obey anyway if you and I will do that no matter what happens around the world no matter what happens in our neighbor to the north the pastors there no matter what happens in the United States in the northeast in Vermont in Bennington no matter what challenges come our way no matter what battles we face you can not only survive but thrive if you'll obey God trust His provision. If you'll obey God and proclaim the truth. If you'll obey God and pray earnestly, effectively. And if you will pray honestly and lead your heart to obey God no matter what. And one day when this life is over, You'll hear him say, well done. My good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of my kingdom where there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death, no more crying. And now you'll spend eternity in the presence of our Savior in great joy. Father, we're human. You know that we are just dust. You know the struggles we face. Lord, you know that sometimes the enemy gets us down. But Father, I pray that we'll remember Elijah. When that happens, we'll pray honestly and then we'll obey consistently. We won't let our thoughts and our feelings dictate, but we'll let you and your word and your spirit dictate the moves we make and the choices we make in our lives. will lead our heart. With your help, we'll obey consistently. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.